If you have your Bibles, turn to the Gospel of John. Uh, I am really excited to start the sermon series in the, Jos- the Gospel <laughs> according to John. It's one of the earliest accounts of Jesus' life, and we learn at the end of the book that it was written by someone who was a very close fo- friend of Jesus, follower of Jesus. He is referred to as the, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Uh, and there's some debate whether this refers to John, the son of Zebedee, one of the, you know, the twelve, one of the fishermen, the apostles, or a different John who lived in Jerusalem and was known in the later church as John the Elder. Uh, I think it's John, the son of Zebedee, because there's so much by way of eyewitness detail throughout the gospel that it, I think it had to have been one of the twelve. But whichever John wrote it, um, the, the gospel... It states its purpose very clearly at the end. We read simply this. The story is written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Uh, Pretty straightforward. John, this John, is convinced that the Jesus we read about in the story is, is alive, he's real, and him, he can change your life forever. So the, uh, the organization of the book, the layout of the book is really cool. It opens up here in verses 1 through 18 with this, this huge poem that's oftentimes referred to the prologue. And then it's followed by a series of big blocks of stories in which Jesus performs these miraculous signs that are controversial. And it all culminates in the greatest sign the raising of Lazarus from the dead, which is, was also the, the greatest controversy. And at that point, the Jewish leaders decide to, to kill him. So the first half of the book is referred to as the book of signs. And then the second half of the book, it focuses on really the last 24 hours of Jesus' days, uh, as it were, on, on earth. Of his time in the upper room with the disciples, of his arrest, his trial his crucifixion, his burial, and then his resurrection. And then, and then it ends with one or two concluding stories uh, and, uh, and an epilogue at the very end. And I don't know, some of you have, have um, watched the Bible Project videos, which are really good for every book of the Bible. And this, here, this is how the Bible Project summarizes the Gospel of John. Quote, Jesus becomes human as the incarnation of the creator God of Israel to share his love and the gift of eternal life with the world. Pretty good summary right there. Um, and so as I said, we will begin looking at the, the poem of John's prologue with the obvious allusion to Genesis 1-1 in the very first words we read. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Um, that word, word, in, in Greek is variously pronounced, it's, it's L-O-G-O-S, variously pronounced depending on which Greek scholar you're talking to, either as uh, logos, which is how I learned it, or logos. Some people call it logos, which is actually not the agreed upon or the standard pronunciation. But I, I have pronounced it so many different ways that I get confused at this point, and so I'll probably pronounce it four different ways in this sermon today. Uh, I will try my best to say Logos, but um, some guys are like, no, it's Logos. Well, whatever. Um, Verse 3, through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. 
In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness... And then the Greek here is rather uh, nebulous or vague. Some translations say the darkness has not comprehended it, but I think the better translation, the darkness has not overcome it. There came a man who was sent from God. His name was John. Uh, This is the same man who we uh, talked about in the Jesus storybook portion, the one who was sent before. John the Baptist, he came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light, the true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, But his own, that is the Jewish people, his own uh, did not receive him. Yet to all that received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will. Children born, born of God. The word became flesh and made his uh, dwelling among us, or literally, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, or also translated, the glory of the only begotten who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And that line, full of grace and truth, we're going to talk about uh, where that comes from in the Old Testament. But the hint is it comes from God's name and character as was proclaimed to Moses in Exodus 34, full of grace and truth. Verse 15, John testifies concerning him. He cries out saying, this is he of whom I have said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. From the fullness of his grace, we have all received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, God, the only begotten, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. Amen. Oh, I can't wait to to study this with you. Let's pray. Uh, Our Father in heaven, we are wading into such deep waters with these words, these are some of the greatest words that have ever been written in, uh, in all of human history. And so we pray for the Holy Spirit to come and aid me in my preaching and aid everyone that is here to understand your words, to cherish your words, um, to receive and, and believe on, on your Son and experience eternal life as he's promised to us here in the gospel. Oh, be with us now, we pray, through Jesus Christ our Lord, and we ask in his name. Amen. Greek philosophers were the ones who came up with this idea originally of the uh, logos. The train of thought, I gotta slow down, okay, I get so excited. (laughs) The train of thought, deep breath, runs from Heraclitus to Socrates to Plato to Aristotle to Cicero, the, uh, the Stoic philosopher. And the Stoics were the ones who developed this like, huge Logos doctrine. And I mean, there's, there's tons of writings by the Stoics on the Logos. 
But at the headwater of Greek philosophy is this guy by the name of Heraclitus. And Heraclitus was the one who said, have you ever heard this before, that we never step into a river um, the, twice, right? Be, because it's always flowing and ever-changing. I kind of messed that up. We never step into a, a river twice because it's always flowing and ever-changing. That was Heraclitus. Heraclitus was, was the founding father. I mean, Heraclitus, the bust of Heraclitus was on tons of Roman uh, or Greek coins. Very big thinker. Well, for Heraclitus, the creation of the world, the ordering of all of life, and the immortality of the, of the human soul were all made possible because of, you guessed it, the logos. The, the logos, this invisible, intelligent force be, behind and in the world. Um, if that's a mouthful, more simply put, the logos is how the world hangs together. The logos is what gives it all cohesion. The logos uh, gives life meaning and purpose and order and rationality. Um, it's the Logos. And as you can imagine, um, volumes have been written about the Logos. And so I've done in one paragraph, I've truncated you know, so much literature. And I'm, I'm just giving you, you know, scratching the surface of it. But that, that was, notice that John is deliberately using a word at the beginning of his gospel that carries a tremendous amount of cultural and linguistic and philosophical freight to start out his, his gospel. Um, so a, a regular Greek-thinking, Greek-speaking person hears this in the very first line, and it's got to make them think, hmm, well, that's interesting. Hmm. And we know that you know, John is a Jewish man, uh, Jew through and through. But at the time that he's writing this gospel, the, the majority of the Christians in the world at that time were Greeks. They're Greek-thinking, you know, Greek-thinking Romans. And we know that John, at the end of his life, spent a significant portion of the end of his life ministering in a very Greek-thinking city, the city of Ephesus. And so he's probably writing with those people in mind. Now, what is it, the average guy on the street in Ephesus going to think when you say, you know, in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God? They're going to be, hmm, um, tell me more, tell me more. My guess, though, is that when John says Logos, He's not primarily thinking about Heraclitus. Oh, no. Um, it's not the Greek logos that John hopes to unpack for us. It's most likely the Hebrew logos, which is, the, the Hebrew word is debar. Uh, debar in the Old Testament is word. Um, and word, debar, is word, and it's act, and it's action. Um, and so, yeah, he's talking to us about the debar of Elohim, the, the word of God. Uh, the God who was revealed in Genesis 1-1 is obviously, he is the God of the Debar. He is, the, he is the, a speaker. He is a speaker. And when God speaks something, it happens. Um, the Debar of the Logos of God is this creative word. And when he speaks things that were not, they come into being. How does he create light? Let there be light. Boom. And it happens. Um, he speaks light into being. He forms a firmament in the skies by his word. He gathers waters by his word. He calls vegetation from the earth by his word. He speaks and makes heavenly lights. He speaks and makes sea creatures. He speaks them into, a be into being and he assigns them names all by, you know, the logos, the debar. And so John is saying, the word created all things. 
in the in in like the most rich sense of the word created. Um, many of you probably like me. One of the shows you like to watch uh, growing up, or maybe you still love to watch today, is Bob Ross's *The Joy of Painting*. Of course, the great fro, wonderful, soothing voice. You know, use nice little strokes and always remember to make your trees look like happy trees. <laughs> happy landscapes. I love Bob Ross. Painters create, but in, in only a certain sense. They create through medium. They are taking existing substances, mixing them together, and rearranging them into some new creative way. They create through medium. But you notice this. When the word creates all things, it is not through medium. It is the, the Latin is ex nihilo, out of nothing. There is no medium. There, there's no canvas. There's no brushes. There's no paints. There's no paints available to the painter. All, all that is, is the debar of God, the logos of God, the word of God. There is no preexistent matter. All there is in eternity, eternally, is the logos. Uh, and he is, the, he is the one that speaks and brings light out of darkness. And you think about it, when he says, okay, he's clearly echoing Genesis 1-1 in the beginning, but John's in the beginning is a little different than Genesis 1-1's in the beginning. Because in the beginning was the logos. The beginning that he is referring to is the beginning of the beginning. Before there was a beginning, before there was anything created, there was eternally a something. And that something, if I haven't already reiterated it, that something is, is the word. Really, the, one of the fundamental questions is, for us as human beings is, what is that something? So in the 19th century, you have philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, so famous for his epitaph that God is dead. Uh, Nietzsche spoke about what he called the reality of eternal recurrence. Um, what is that? He went on to say that the universe does not have a beginning. The universe is eternal and the universe is eternally in this endless recurrent cycle of birth to death. The, the universe is eternal. There, there's never a time when the universe did not exist. And Carl Sagan picks up on this when he says that the universe was all that there, there ever was, all that ever has been, all that ever will be. That, that's Sagan to Nietzsche to... And one of the dominant cosmologies, you know, explanations for why there is something today is, is this idea that the, the universe is, we've talked about it before, this eternal accordion. It goes boom, you know, the big bang. And then eventually when all of that energy dies out, it goes back into that infinitesimally small point, the big contraction. And they, they, they say it's, it's birth and it's death and it's birth and it's death. It's like an accordion. And it's been doing this according to many philosophers and scientists. It's been doing this forever. Boom, 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 boom. And that's what they say is eternal. Something has to be eternal. Something had to be there. Um, you remember in The Sound of Music where Maria and Captain Von Trapp, they have fallen in love and they're singing their lovely duet about how baffled they are to have found each other at this moment in their lives. And they have uh, the song, Somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have... I must have done something good. So they, they, great, right in the middle of the story is karma. (laughs) I must have done something good in my childhood to find uh, such a beautiful woman as you. Bad theology. 
<laughs> but there is a line in that song that is good philosophy, good theology. And it's that, you know what I'm probably talking about already. It's nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could. Deeply philosophical statement. Nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could. Right in the middle of the movie. You think about it. That's true. If there ever was a time that there was nothing, all there would ever be is nothing. Right. Like technically speaking, you can't even say that there would be nothing because nothing has no being. So if there is at this time a something today, there must have always been something for that something to come from. And the question is, what is that original something? And according to to Nietzsche and according to many philosophers and scientists today, it's an eternal accordion. Um, It is, and very important, think about this too. For Nietzsche... There's no logos in that eternal accordion. There is no purpose. There's no meaning. There's no order. There's no rationality. It's just, it's meaningless. It's meaningless. Now, that's a a fairly robust faith commitment, I would say. Uh, Can you prove to me that the, uh, when we talk about multiverses, that there's an infinite number of possible different dimensions or universes out there. And it just so happens we are in the universe that does the accordion. But there may be, you know, lots of other universes that maybe in that universe they spiral. <laughs> and maybe in this universe they go backwards. I mean, let me come on. Let's be honest. That is a, that is a fundamentally faith commitment. It is a faith Yeah, so John, what he says is, if you can stretch your mind back as far as you can possibly go, there never was a time when the word was not. Uh, That is John, that is Athanasius, that is Athanasius contramundum, Athanasius against the world. John says, the Logos was there, the Logos was God, the Logos was with God. And there we get into Trinitarian mystery. Right? The Logos, let's talk about that for a second. The Logos was God, identical with God. The Logos was with God, that is, distinct from God. And there we, we're into Trinitarian mystery. He never explains to us how the Trinity can be, but in the very first verses of God, John's Gospel, he's telling us that there is a Trinity. There, is, there are persons, there are, there's distinctions within this one God. And he's, he's obviously laying the foundation for it. One of the things I'm most looking forward to in the Gospel of John, the the Gospel of John is is filled with more Trinitarian theology than any other book in the Bible. Um, And much of it I don't understand. (laughs) So I'm really looking forward to studying it and looking at it with you because there is a rich unpacking of the Trinity. Uh, Remember when we had Peter Lightheart here a couple of years ago and and he was unpacking that phrase of Jesus in the upper room that when you see me, you see the Father, that there is a mutual indwelling of the Father and the Son and the one persons. And yeah, I can't wait to get there <laughs> and discover what all of that means. But drilling down on verse 1 for just a minute more, maybe you've had a conversation with Jehovah's Witnesses, and, and it goes like this. They will tell you that the word uh, that was God at the end of verse 1, um, that word God does not have an article in front of it. And therefore, it should be rendered, the, the word was a God. You know, the word was not the God, that is Jehovah, but a God, 
lowercase g, a lesser divine being. Ever, anybody else had, you ever invite them into your house and have those conversations? Um, Yeah, well, guess what? There's not a single reputable Greek scholar in the world today who agrees with them. Um, Not a single one. The the, the reason that theos, the word for God, doesn't have an article in front of it is because it's put at the very beginning of the sentence in order to highlight. It's kind of like if you're writing in Greek and you're not in a word processor, so you can't hit the the bold button, the way you bold words is by moving around in your sentence structure. So you put theos in the very beginning to say, the word was God. Really God. The God. It was so incredible to John. John is a Jewish man. John knows that if you worship anything other than Yahweh of the Old Testament, that is idolatry, it's blasphemy, it's death sentence. You will be condemned by Yahweh for that. And yet he's fully convinced that this man, Jesus Christ, is actually the only true God who has come. And he's betting, in essence, he is betting his entire soul and everything, his eternity, on the belief that Jesus Christ really is God. Uh, a doctrine that was uh, being attacked in his day. But it blows his mind. Um, not just our preferred God. <laughs> he is the only God. One of the reasons I mentioned this about Jehovah's Witnesses is I, I think there's a lesson for us here. Many of our primary beliefs are not based upon, quote, evidence. No. Like, no amount of evidence is going to convince a Jehovah's Witness of something different regarding verse 1. Um, and it's what one of the themes we'll see in the Gospel of John is this consistent rejection of Jesus Christ by his own people. Even though they're given incontrovertible proofs that Jesus is really the Messiah, nevertheless, with the best evidence in the world, they still don't believe. They won't believe. And it really does explain to you how um, you're having a gospel conversation. It, evidence is not enough. It's, it's not enough. It, it really, it depends upon God giving new birth to that other person to change their fundamental faith commitment. And only then does evidence, you know, make a difference. Because at the heart of all of our fundamental beliefs is a commitment of faith, of good faith, of bad faith, of whatever faith. And only a change of those commitments will ever lead to evidence being persuasive. All right, moving on. Uh, Verse 4, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The prologue contains a lot of themes that John's going to develop throughout the gospel. The key words would be life, light, witness, truth, world, glory, believe, all of those are going to be unpacked. But, but this one is pretty critical, this light and darkness theme. Jesus, later on in the gospel, is going to stand up at a Jewish feast, a feast that has lots of light metaphors, uh, part of it. He will stand up and simply say, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. It's not my dogma that's the light of the world. It's my, not my teaching. I am the light of the world. If you've ever done this with kids before, you can take 
back in the old days, we used to have erasers with chalkboards. And <laughs> the erasers would get filled with chalk, but you take the, you know, knock, knock them together to spread chalk dust all throughout the, the air, and you flip the lights off, and then you shine a laser pointer right through it, or you shine a flashlight right through it, and kids are amazed because they, they can see, oh, that's how the beam works. When we do that, what do we call light? Do we call the, the flashlight right there? Do we call the light? Or do we call the beam that is going through? Is, is that the light? The answer is, of course, both. Light is the source and it is the beam. And that is what Jesus is saying about himself. He is the source of the light and he is the beam of the light has come. And throughout the remaining chapters of John's gospel, what Jesus is going to do is he's going to stubbornly shine in the darkness that was the first century of the world. He's going to stubbornly, faithfully, and obediently shine into that darkness. And though the, the world will rally all of its dark forces to extinguish the light that is Jesus, the darkness will fail because the darkness was predestined to fail because it cannot overcome, it cannot overcome the light. Amen? World War II historians tell us that at the height of World War II, when the German Air Force, the Luftwaffe, was bombing European allied cities, every night after sundown, Every light and every home and every city was ordered to be extinguished. You could not turn on a light bulb. You could not light a candle. You could not... Because the darkness of the countryside was, was so great that even the slightest bit of... The slightest flicker of light from miles away could give away your city's position to a bomber overhead. Such is the power of one true source of light. Um, and in our day, dark forces still struggle to overcome the light that has come into this world. Kingdoms war against it. Yeah, they war against the truth. But no matter how dark the darkness gets, it cannot and will not be able to overcome it because Christ is the light of the world and he will always shine forever. Amen? So I was in Seattle uh, all day with Brian on Wednesday. We were at a church planning network meeting, a board meeting. A group of pastors were together. Things you ask other pastors is, how are things going in your church? And then, what are you preaching? Because those are things that kind of fo- focus the attention of our lives. And I asked, asked some guys, and they asked me back. I said, I'm, I'm starting the Gospel of John. And one of the other pastors, a man whom I really respect, Eric Irwin at Covenant Presbyterian Church in Issaquah, he said, oh, Gospel of John. You know, my son is doing a PhD at the University of Durham over, over the pond, and it's, it's largely rooted in the Gospel of John. He's, he's dealing with the question of what does it mean to see God? Because surprisingly, not a lot of people have actually written on that topic. What does it mean to see God? Which is a big theme in the Gospel of John. And here we come to uh, verse 14. The Word became flesh and tabernacled 
among us. Like in the Old Testament, remember the presence of God was located in the tabernacle temple. The radiant glory of God would come down on the tabernacle and temple in a cloud and would often hover over the Ark of the Covenant. And so John is here, he's drawing from the stories of the Exodus and saying, well, now the glory of God has tabernacled in the flesh of Christ. And he goes on, for we have seen his glory now, the glory of the one and only God who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. That line, full of grace and truth, is a purposeful echo of Exodus 34. Exodus 34, where God is proclaiming his name to Moses and his character to Moses. And he says, uh, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Chesed and emet are the two Hebrew words there. Steadfast love and faithfulness. Well, guess what happens when you translate those Hebrew words into Greek? What do you think they are? They are the Greek words grace and truth. The equivalent is full of grace and truth. And so we could put it this way. God's covenant faithfulness finds its ultimate expression in the sending of his one-of-a-kind son, Jesus, who tabernacles in the flesh and thereby shows us the glory of God here in in human flesh. Uh, So the connection then between Erickson's PhD and what I'm talking about is verse 18, where he says, no one has ever seen God. Now, John, he recognizes that people did see God in the Old Testament. They saw God partially in the Old Testament. Moses saw God, but only saw the back of God in the Old Testament. What what he means by that is nobody has ever, ever, ever looked upon God face to face. No one has ever seen the, the full sense of holy splendor in the face of God until this one moment when we see it in Jesus. And I don't know if you've ever asked this question before. Why is the incarnation not fatal to those who look at him? Because if it is the glory of God as found in the face of Jesus, why, is it, why doesn't it burn the disciples' eyes out? Why doesn't, like, why doesn't it take out our retinas? And the answer, of course, is God has manifested himself in something that is not divine, but, but is human. He has manifested himself in flesh, like incarnate. We got carne asada, like in, in, in the meat of Jesus. And so if you follow me here, the glory is hidden in the flesh so it doesn't burn our eyes out, but the glory is still truly seen in the flesh. That's why when Wesley in our hymn says, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. It was right. (laughs) It was right. We could say veiled in flesh, the glory see. It's seen. It's there. Now, I wonder if this isn't why we should always wrap Christmas presents. I know some of us have the practice of you just give a present without wrapping it. but, But really what we are doing when we wrap our presents, we are veiling our gifts under colored paper so that we can tear through that paper and see the great gift that someone has for us. And at Christmas, you know, God has like veiled his glory in the flesh of Jesus. But in a sense, and here's where we're going to go to, on the cross, on the cross, 
It's like the, t- the paper has been torn off. <laughs> Uh, and we see the glory there. We see God as we never imagined him before. Um, and so that's where he begins to tail the, tail, tear the veil of the paper. Uh, his glory that has been hidden for thousands of years, it, it's finally seen. The gift of the glory in the flesh of the Son of God as God unwraps himself and unhides himself to show us in Jesus Okay, let me conclude with verses 11 and 12. Uh, We'll read those. He came to to that which was his own, that is the Jewish people, but his own did not receive him. Some received him, but but not as the people as a whole. Yet to all who received him, to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Um. And as we said earlier, uh, as a child of God, the gift of God is eternal life in his son, Jesus Christ. So around five years ago, I heard this story, and I I take it to be a reputable story. Five five years ago, two missionaries went to show the Jesus film in a country that was close to the gospel. They went into a remote mountain village where about 250 people gathered in a small room, as clandestine as they could, shades drawn, doors closed. It was packed. And there on the small screen on the wall, they had that to show the Jesus film. After the film was over, a man who was there stood up and he said, I have something to tell you. And he opens his vest and he's covered in explosives. He, he has a, a suicide bomber vest on. And panic, of course, sets in the room. I mean, he says, I have something to tell you. I mean, if you're strapped with bombs, I guess, go ahead. <laughs> you, you can. We're not going to stop you. He said, I came here because news had leaked about these missionaries' arrival. And I, uh, found, having found that, conspired with the leaders of our village to kill all of you. And when the film started... I went to press the button and Jesus turned to me and said, don't do that. Follow me and live. And every time watching this film that I went to push the button, every time Jesus turned to me and said, don't do that. Follow me and live. Then he turned to the missionaries and said, I want to know more about Jesus. Can you help me? And they said, yes, of course, if you please take off your vest first. (laughs) Everyone in that room knew that they had witnessed a miracle, that it saved their lives. And the missionaries, they asked the room, you know, how many of you want to receive Christ? And um, again, it's a part of the world where if if you receive Christ, it may cost you your life. And every, every hand in that room, all 250 people, raised their hands to receive Christ and be baptized. And you, just, uh, you imagine if, like, three months later, you're sitting down in a worship service, uh, hidden away, and that guy sits down next to you. You would recognize him. <laughs> and you would look at him and you would, you would think, what was about to be the worst, most shameful day of your life ended up being the day that that we all became children of God. (laughs) 
And you know something incredible has happened. And it was all because of Jesus. Um, I Look at me. Don't, don't do that, was it? Look at me. Come follow me and live. Um, he made you, John says. He created you. He created everything that we see. You were created by him and through him and for him. He is the center of all things. We, we don't go to a holy place like a temple or a mosque or a synagogue or a red rock to sit in the lotus position. We don't, we don't go into a, a holy gymnasium if such a thing even exists. We don't go to a holy place because we have this, this one logos in the flesh, this one holy person. Um, and you know you're going to spend the rest of your life learning about him the rest of your eternity, like cherishing him and knowing him more and being astonished by him and being absolutely satisfied and grateful for him. That's what's in store for us. Uh, I think that's hopefully some of the things that are in store for us as we go through the Gospel of John. So I'm really looking forward to it. I hope you are too. Amen.